I don't know if you've ever heard of a race called the Toth Mudder. Now, I've got quite a few friends who go to it. It's, to be honest, I think it's a bit ridiculous. It's a 12-mile obstacle course, which involves them going through things like electric shock wires, a mile of waist-deep mud, and a tunnel filled with tear gas. Honestly, I don't understand quite why people do it. Um, but it's just a challenge. And it's a real endurance race. A lot of people just don't finish it. And the reason why they don't finish it is because they don't train. They don't think that they're going to need to make any effort to get to the end. But the friends I know who do go, they're not super athletes. They're just regular and ordinary people. And they make a real effort to train up, to build stamina and to build endurance. And although it's hard and it might initially look impossible, this race is very, very possible when people train for it in a disciplined way. Now, I don't know how you imagined the Christian life to be, whether you thought it would be easy or hard, whether you thought it would be joyful or demoralizing, whether you thought it would be a walk in the park, a sprint to the finish, or maybe something more like Tough Mudder, something that is an endurance race on which there are many obstacles. And today's passage in Hebrews comes to us from something like that endurance race, the marathon that is going to be the Christian life of faith. And we're going to look at what it's going to mean for us to reach heaven and eventually the new creation intact as believers. In the Christian life, it's not about how we start, but about how we finish the race. You might think then it's not without a hint of irony that they've got the least athletic member of the preaching team to preach on this passage. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to look at this from four pictures. We're going to look at the crowd, the champion, the discipline, and the distractions of the race. So let's start with that crowd then from verse 1. Picture yourself at the starting line of a marathon. You're limbering up for the race, and all around you, you see past winners, people who finish the race that prove that it's possible. And that's exactly where we start in verse 1 of this passage, surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Well, they're everyone that Hebrews chapter 11 says died in faith. Every single person from Abraham through to Moses, all these Old Testament characters, stand as proof that the race is possible. Chapter 11 says that they did not receive what was promised. And that just means that they finished in faith, but they're still waiting for their reward. The reward they're waiting for is the new creation in which we will join them. And for Hebrew believers, that would be a real encouragement, I think, to hear of all the people that they've heard about for their entire lives, all the stories that they know, and to see that they finished the race. This passage, I think, sometimes unfortunately gets named heroes of the faith. But these weren't heroes. These were just regular people. And we know that some of them did incredible things. But they were ordinary, flawed human beings. And they held out in faith to the end. And they stand as proof for ordinary people like you and I that finishing the race is possible. 
And this stands true today. When Christians grow old and grow frail and die in faith, they stand as proof that the finish line is possible. And I'm sure we can think of people or even family members who've died in faith. The promise clearly has not yet come, but their reward of eternal life is waiting for them. And they stand as examples to us that the race is possible. We can finish in faith. So what should we do? Well, they're the very first encouragement to keep running. The finish line is very achievable. Secondly then, the champion. I'm sure if you think back to either the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics, you can think of champions, medal winners maybe. People who are the absolute top of their game in whatever event or sport that they're in. Now, if you're a cyclist, that could be Chris Hoy, or if you're a runner, maybe Mo Farah or Usain Bolt. Every single one of them is someone who an athlete would look to for inspiration on how to run their race. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we've seen people who've shown us the race is possible, but the question for us is, how are we going to run? Do we act like them, or is there someone greater to look to? Well, if you look down at verses 2 and 3, in this race of the Christian life, we look to our champion, Jesus, to see how to become fit for the race. What makes him the champion? Well, Hebrews calls Jesus the founder and perfecter, or in another version, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Not only is he the one who ran the race before us, but he's the one who ran it perfectly. For instance, Hebrews tells us to throw off every weight and every sin that slows us down. And when we look to Jesus, we see one who ran without any weights or sins holding him down. He is the fittest runner for this race. But this race that was marked out was by no means easy. In fact, we know that Jesus endured far more than we ever will in his life. And he overcame every single obstacle, even enduring the shame of the cross and his own crucifixion, by looking forward to his reward, by looking forward to the joy that was set before him by the Father, keeping his eyes on the goal of the inheritance which the Father had laid down for him, to be with us, with his people, in the new creation. How would that have helped us if we were the Hebrews reading this for the first time? Well, we know from what we've seen in previous weeks and chapters that they were suffering a lot of hostility for their belief in Jesus. From their Jewish neighbours, from their own family members, turning away from their Jewish faith would have been absolutely detrimental to their place in society. And this is why verse 3 encourages them. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And that hostility would be wearying and hard to face. And that on top of the normal stresses and strains of their daily life. But all these Hebrew Christians would know that Christ had endured much, much worse for his reward. And over the course of their lives, they would learn to look to him in order to know how to endure whatever they were suffering. And likewise, whenever we suffer in this life because of persecution or hardship 
or suffering, whatever we have to endure, we learn to look to Christ. We look to the one who ran the race perfectly with joy, keeping his eyes on the reward that was set before him, who is now seated at the right hand of God so that we don't lose heart. And it is hard to endure in the Christian life. We do endure a lot. I'm sure we all understand that. And when we look to Jesus, we see one who is actually worth following. When I want to know, how do I endure what I'm going through? Well, the answer is, I look to Jesus, who has endured much worse. And I see how he walked, so that I learn how I might walk. We see someone totally worth enduring for. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews has shown us how Jesus is in every way the saviour that we need. He is in every way the one who is worth enduring for. So these first three verses of this chapter, they're not that much, but they're very deep. And they're absolutely filled with encouragement. In order to understand the rest of what we're going to go through in this passage, we need to look back to this encouragement again and again and think of where we started this race. So let's go on to the discipline then. Now, any serious athlete wouldn't be able to compete in their sport if they didn't train. It's a phrase that our society uses again and again. No pain, no gain. And it's the same with Tough Mudder. If people didn't train for Tough Mudder, they simply wouldn't finish. It's a disciplined effort, as is any good training. And as we move into this next section then, we might have expected to see maybe God the personal trainer after this analogy of a race. But actually, the description we're given is a bit different. We're given a description of God as a loving father, not a standoffish, cold personal trainer, but a loving father helping his children to endure the race. And this section on discipline runs from verses 4 to verse 13. And in it, we're going to look at what the discipline of the father looks like and why he would discipline us. What this section makes very, very clear, straight off, is that it's very important that this discipline is coming from a loving father and not this athletics coach. It's not that we're enduring and suffering and that makes us into his sons, but that as Christians, we are already children of God. And because of that, our father disciplines us. The discipline we face comes out of a loving relationship. It doesn't make it happen. (coughs) So, I think there's two ways that this passage talks about what this discipline might look like. First, the endurance of hardship. And secondly, the correction of our sin. So what are these things then? Well, verse 2 and 3 has told us that Christ endured both the shame of the cross and hostility from sinners as God's son. And earlier in Hebrews, we have seen that Jesus was made perfect by what he suffered. And that theme is picked up again in this chapter, when it describes Jesus as the perfecter of our faith. Now, for the original Hebrew readers, facing the division of friends and families for following Jesus, and facing the pressure of enduring a faithful life, 
I'm sure it would have been an incredible comfort to know that Christ had suffered as well. That whatever hardship they endure, that they would learn to endure it as something that had come from their relationship with the Father. And the discipline that matures a believer, that helps them grow, that helps them to endure in their faith, is what they've received. Now, that discipline is by no means easy or comfortable. And it doesn't mean that it's easy to understand what's happening for them or why they're undergoing all this persecution. But it is happening. And the Father knows it's happening. And he has a long-term goal in mind. The second type of discipline, then, not just enduring hardship, but correction of sin. This comes out of verse 4 of this passage which sees the fight against sin as enough of a battle to cause the shedding of blood. And certainly for Jesus, in his battle against sin and his total obedience to the Father, he ended up shedding his own blood on the cross. This passage sees the fight against sin as a very real battle. For the Hebrews, they needed reminders that it would be hard to battle their sin. Their position as sons of God is something that they would have to endure for. And it would be one of God's continued discipline of their lives. The father really takes his children's sin seriously, wanting to discipline them away from what would ultimately be harmful to them. Now, if those two ideas of discipline are something that we're maybe not used to thinking about, then how should we think about them? How are we to understand this discipline? Well, this passage sets us in light of a parent-child relationship. And that's how we should understand it as children of God, if we're Christians. To understand this, let's look at the loving discipline of a parent to its child. This first type of discipline, then, enduring hardship for our training. Well, think about a child when it's young. A parent might take it to swimming lessons. And that child may well absolutely hate swimming lessons. It's very possible. I definitely did. Uh, and there's, the child just has no idea why the parent is dragging them back to the swimming pool once a week, months on end. But the parent knows that this is a good thing for the child. And when the child's grown up, even though it spends a long time complaining, it's a competent swimmer and it's able to thank its parents because it underwent that discipline and training. And that's actually mean for its long-term good. Now, I think in this passage, that's the discipline that God uses to teach his children holiness. The second type of discipline maybe looks a bit different then. Something that God uses to train his children out of specific sins. Now, say a child's at a bonfire and keeps running towards that fire. It's just determined to stick its hand in. Well, any loving parent would warn the child not to go near it. And that warnings would get sterner and sterner. And at the end, the child just keeps wanting to run into that fire. So eventually, the child is taken back inside, away from the fun around the fire, in order to protect it. And most likely, the child will get a decent telling off for doing that too. Now, it's unlikely a young child really understands why this has happened. They don't know what it's like to put their hand in a fire. But no loving parent would just let their child run straight into a fire. 
It's not that the child understands the discipline, but it's still better that it was being disciplined and protected and loved and having to endure this than that it was completely harmed. And I think that helps us to understand the second type of discipline then, what the father would use to keep us away from things that are ultimately very, very harmful. Things that in this race of faith would throw us off completely and stop us running. Now as we go through the circumstances of our lives, we don't always see what the Lord's discipline looks like. In the same way that that child doesn't really understand what's actually happening when it's being disciplined, we aren't always able to see quite what God is doing in our lives. The Christian life is a hard one, and it requires us to endure a lot of things. But every single one of these things is there to strengthen us. It's not that the tough things that we go through are the direct punishment of God, but that God is using all of the hardship in our lives that we face, that we might learn to endure. And that what we endure makes our relationship with the Father deeper and stronger and warmer. And it's a relationship that makes us learn to trust the Father God with everything in our lives. But that takes time, and that discipline is hard to endure. And we shouldn't necessarily expect to know the precise reasons behind everything that we suffer, because we will not always find them. But we do know that whatever we're facing, God's using it to strengthen us and to help us endure. And I think that helps us to understand why this passage is so focused on the relationship between a loving father and his children. At no point between verses 3 and 13 does it lose that idea. Whether we're enduring hardship or the correction of our sin, it all comes from the loving father. And verse 11 says that for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I'm sure we know that that's true. I mean, we don't always directly believe it, that God is using the hard things in our lives for something good. And it's because the hardships that we're facing are hard. A good question is, what might this discipline look like then? Well, maybe these examples will help. Say you move house, and in the process you lose out on a lot of money. And for a period of time, you're living on a lot less. And maybe initially you're worried and you're tense. But then you get through it, and you're fine. And you learn that maybe money wasn't the biggest issue. That God is very able to look after you and provide for you. And you learn to trust more. You might be doing well at work. But then all of a sudden you're passed over for a promotion or put up for redundancy or even out of work for a period of time. You're used to being successful, but now you have to wait and sometimes even keep waiting for things to change. But by this, you learn to be patient. It could be that someone you love gets sick and then you begin to realize how powerless you are to look after them, your complete inability to change the thing that's happening to them. And you learn to trust and rely on God more because you see your own weakness. 
And whatever the crutch is that we're relying on in our lives, God may use those things, or even take them away, to show us what reliance on him really looks like. It could be a relationship, money we've saved up, our health, our home, the closest things to us that we really depend and rely on. And the Father may use those things for our discipline. A question then, why is God doing this? If he disciplines us like this, does he really actually love us? We're in a society where discipline really isn't a popular idea. And we might ask the question, in the very hardest circumstances of our lives, fraught with pain, how could God possibly use this for my good? But Hebrews anticipates these questions. If you look at verses 5 to 11, it gives us an extended answer to that question. And it starts off with, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, that might sound a little strange to us, but for the original Hebrew believers, they would know that they were the children of God. That phrase, children of God, would have been applied to them for a long time. And that quote is given from Proverbs to remind them that they are children of God. And verses 7 and 8 go on to say that whatever they endure, it is for the sake of discipline. And it's just proof that they're being treated as God's children. And if they hadn't received this discipline, they couldn't call themselves God's children. The answer to the question of why am I enduring this is because you're a child of God. And because your father knows what he's doing. What is he trying to bring about in this, though? What is God trying to discipline me into or to do? Well, we're given three answers to that question. Verse 9, to be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Verse 10, that we may share in his holiness. And verse 11, that it might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Father disciplines his children that they may live holy and righteous lives, that these children would reflect something of their own father. The father knows what is best for us. He created us. And he knows how we might best live. Even greater than that, though, he disciplines us that we might turn to him and live. That we might have eternal life in loving relationship with our father. He doesn't do this discipline just for our lives now, but for our eternal life with him. And though this discipline is not comfortable, and we might not always understand it, it brings about lives filled with God's holiness, and ultimately eternal life with him to come, if we endure in Christ to the end. Then discipline of God is both a comfort and a challenge. It's a comfort to know that whatever we're going through, that God is using those things for good and that they're proof that we are his children. The challenge is that the hardships we face are real. That every single hardship is teaching us to endure and they are very hard. I'm sure we've all experienced significant pain in our lives, even recently and even you might be going through it right now. 
And the idea that God is using those circumstances for our good is sometimes such a hard one. But a loving father never wastes his discipline. He doesn't discipline randomly or unnecessarily, but for your good. We might be able to look back in years to come and thank God for what he's done. Or we might never see how he's been at work, and that is a real possibility. But whatever we endure over time, we learn to trust the Father's goodness. The other thing to consider, though, is the alternative to that. In some ways, this passage has offered you a choice to endure the hardship that you will go through in life as discipline, or to endure the suffering that you go through without a purpose. If these hardships don't help us to grow and endure in faith, if they are beyond God's hand to use them for good, then they're just hopeless, and no good can come of them. If the pain and suffering in my life has no purpose, and I have to endure hardship without the loving hand of the Father to guide me through, then that makes my suffering utterly unbearable. If you're not a Christian here, I wonder how you view your suffering. How you look at those hard circumstances of your life. Do you think that any good can come out of them? You might think that they help you to grow, but what is the ultimate purpose of them? Are they actually hopeless or not? And consider what good news this passage is then. That there is a loving God who can use these things ultimately for good. That there is purpose in suffering and that there is a reason behind our hardship. And that all this comes from a loving relationship with a Father God. So the choice for us is, do I see the cost of the things in my life that I have to endure and think it too great? Or do I see Jesus the champion and continue to endure because of him? The last two verses of this section then, verses 12 and 13, give us a wonderful picture of the gentle and loving discipline of the Father. It says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. The Father knows our weakness and our weariness, the stresses and strains of the race that he's marked out for us. But his son ran it before us, and endured more suffering than we ever have to. And when we undergo this discipline, it makes us fitter for the race, that our injuries would be healed, that we might run to the finish. It's not easy, but it's making us endure till we see heaven and spend eternity with our Father. So finally then, the distractions from this race. What's going to weigh us down or stop us running this race altogether? Well, if you think back to the Tough Mudder, as if those obstacles weren't hard enough already, imagine you're at the starting line and right next to you, a person turns up wearing three pairs of trousers, hiking boots, five jumpers, a ski jacket, and a rucksack full of bricks. And you might think, he's not going to get very far. <laughs> In fact, he probably won't make the first mile without completely exhausting himself and just having to stop. Unless he throws off all the stuff that he's taken on and runs freely. And that's a bit like us. We don't always see how much of a hindrance 
the sins and weights of our lives are going to be to this race of faith. And there's a lot that we need to get rid of. The first verse of the chapter encourages us to throw off the weights and sins that cling closely to us in our lives. And in this last part, we're going to consider what those are. And then look at Hebrews 1 example of how this race might go wrong for us. Now I wonder if you ever find yourself doing something and asking yourself the question, I wonder if what I'm doing right now is sinful. We might say to ourselves, well, what I'm doing is not good, but if it's not a sin, it's probably fine. And then we find ourselves just trying to to push boundaries a little bit further and further to see how close we can get to sinning before actually it's an issue. Now, whatever those things are, whatever situations you find yourself in where you are pushing those boundaries and asking those questions, they they may well be things that we have to get rid of in order to run the race of faith well. Now, to give some examples of what that could be, it's not wrong in any way to earn money. But if you're constantly checking your bank balance and your savings to make sure that it's exactly what you expect it to be, and that's taking up all of your time, then that could have become an issue. It's not wrong to have a hobby. In fact, it's a great thing. But what if it's taking up all of your time, taking you away from your family and away from church? That might have become something that is just an obsession. It could just be your computer. The three hours of internet TV that you watch every night whilst telling people that you don't have time for God. That probably is something that is slowing down your Christian life. And it definitely looks like a distraction from the race. And this could be a whole range of things. So make sure to take that idea seriously. This passage tells you to lay those things aside. So figure out what you are. Figure out what those things are. And figure out a way to rid yourself of them. And often those things are much harder to figure out than our sins. Because they're so much less obvious. What about those sins though? Well, as I've already said before... It's going to be a battle, and we're going to have to resist to the point of shedding blood. And what this says to the Hebrews is that absolutely no one is going to finish the race of faith without some battle scars. Our sin will try and cripple us, making the race impossible for us to run. And this is the reason the Father has to discipline us, that we might be fit for the race. So what examples does Hebrews give us? If you look down to verses 15 to 17, Hebrews urges us to look out for each other in order that we all finish the race together. What's going to stop us from doing this? Well, bitterness and sexual immorality. And these are both things, examples of things that cause huge issues in communities of people. And in the church, there are things that are going to stop all of us together progressing on this race. It's really hard to keep your eyes on Christ if you're constantly looking to the faults and problems of other people. And we all take our eyes off the finish line. But the one example that Hebrews gives us, which is very specific, is the example of Esau. (coughs) Now, Esau is a character from the Old Testament who is mentioned in chapter 11 of the people who died by faith. He's mentioned next to them. He's not mentioned as dying in faith. Esau didn't reach this finish line we've been talking about. 
Why, did he finish? Why didn't he finish the race? Well, because he got distracted by his own desires and his own comforts. Hebrews says that he gave up his father's birthright for a single meal. He didn't see the value of what he had or what he was looking forward to. He became blinded by his desires and ended up with no inheritance and no blessing. This wasn't an action that he could take back later on in life. The blessing had been taken. And he's a painful example of how how our sins will throw us off the race. And as with many other things in Hebrews, it stands as a warning that it's very possible not to finish your life in faith. Esau's not one of the crowd of witnesses from verse 1. He didn't live by faith. He didn't hit the finish line and will not receive the reward. And he will stand forever alongside the other warnings in Hebrews that it's possible not to endure to the end. Now the whole of the rest of this chapter is being an encouragement to endure to the end. But what we need at that point then is the warning to remind us that it is possible not to finish. As hard as that is to hear. But it's because the Father loves us that he would give us this warning. He is that concerned for us to finish in him. To receive eternal life and live with him forever. And that's how important this race is. There's many distractions from that finish line. So we need to be careful to set aside our sins and all the weights that weigh us down and run freely and endure to the end. So that's it. And that's the Christian life. It's not a walk in the park, not a sprint to the finish, but an endurance race. So let's throw off the things that are holding us back. Look to those who finished before us and run the race that's set out, that's set out for us looking to Christ every single day that we might learn how to finish and join the crowd rating for the reward when Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your discipline in our lives. We know that enduring in our faith till the end will not be easy. But we thank you for your guiding hand in every part of our lives for your loving guidance to others so please help us to apply this message from Hebrews to our hearts help us to throw off the weights and sins that distract us from you and we thank you for all those witnesses that you have given us that show us that the life of faith is possible and for Jesus who showed us how to run it perfectly so we thank you for all these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.